it was very natural for me to immediately choose who's going to star in this book that I've now written one sentence of. So I sat down, typing away, and I think Zero Dark Thirty had come out maybe, I forget what year it came came out, a year, maybe two years, anyway, right around that time frame-ish. Uh, so I'd seen this guy, Chris Pratt, play a seal, and I heard he was in this show called uh, Parks and Rec. And so I was like, oh, this guy in Parks and Rec, and then look at him in Zero Dark Thirty playing a seal. Wow, that he's a totally different person, but in both, inherently likable. And so I chose, I thought, Chris Pratt, this will be the guy, uh, because I didn't want someone who, and of course, this is me saying all this, I have one sentence written at this point, <laughs> uh, connections anywhere. I want the right person for this. And for me, Chris Pratt was the guy. You're listening to the Born Primitive Podcast. Uh, today, we're really stoked. Uh, we have a really unique guest, uh, Jack Carr. Uh, Jack Carr um, honor- honorably served his country in the Navy as a Navy SEAL for over 20 years. Um, and then what's fascinating about Jack is, um, you know, after he retired, he transitioned and became um, New York Times bestselling author um, and executive producer on the Amazon uh, series, The Terminal List, which I'm sure a lot of you have seen, and it was a pretty epic series. So, uh, we're going to uh, speak with Jack today, kind of learn about his story and uh, hopefully extract um, some some um, things that he's done to be successful and can be applicable to us. So, Jack, thank you so much for joining us. Man, thank you guys for having me on. This is awesome. I'm wearing one of your shirts right now. Heck yeah. <laughs> Love but, it. Uh, yeah, I'm wearing a Born Primitive shirt right there. And uh, I was going through them today uh, just before the podcast here. And all the Best Defense Foundation shirts that you guys made are just just awesome and such a cool cool partnership you have with them absolutely and just for context for the listeners uh, jack and i first met um going out to hawaii for the um anniversary of pearl harbor um a charity we both support uh the best defense foundation takes uh world war ii veterans back to kind of their battlefields you know these guys are um 95 years old and it's the, obviously the, the final stage of their life and they get some closure um, give them a hero's welcome. And it's just a really cool experience. So Jack and I got to spend some time about, I think about six days out in Pearl Harbor and be a part of that and just a super moving experience. Um, and I know we were both caretakers for a couple of the veterans that were, you know, in wheelchairs and, um, but what a cool thing that Donnie is running over there and, and, uh, giving back to our veterans. Yeah, it's incredible. And, uh, for my daughter to go out there at age 16, when, uh, when you met her, uh, and then we did it again in Normandy a few months later there in June and amazing for her to be able to sit across the table from these guys, like you said, 95 to 103 years old. The 90, ones that are 95 probably lied about their age to get in. <laughs> and uh, just, just to hear that from them, hear their stories from them, instead of reading about these things in a history book and not having that personal touch point, I think it changed the the course of her, her life and it was just such a powerful experience. I just talked to one, uh, Walter Stowe, my, uh, one of the guys that I took care of in uh, uh, Normandy uh, yesterday. So touched base with him and my daughter still touched, touches base with all those guys that, uh, that she got to talk to on that trip. So extremely powerful. Yeah. And that's, that's gotta be so cool for your daughter to see that because, you know, when I, when I look at maybe our, the, the generation, you know, kind of in the middle school, high school range, like I think, a lot of that is maybe a little bit lost and it provides great perspective. I mean, all you need to do is go to those cemeteries, right? You know, I've been to the cemetery at Normandy and you stand there and you look over the cliffs and it's like, if that doesn't ground you and, you know, give you some um, humility, it also, you know, just pride and in, in, in kind of make you realize what our country has gone through to give us the freedoms we have today. So for your daughter to be able to experience that, like while you're there, like that, that is absolutely epic. Yeah. After she was with us in Hawaii, they asked her to, to speak at uh, the cemetery in Normandy. So she spoke in front of those World War II veterans, and then they had other speakers as well. But she spoke as uh, giving her perspective from her generation, and I could not have been more proud of her. It was uh, it was really moving and uh, a proud dad moment. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Jack, I know you know. Obviously, you achieved quite a bit of success prior to being a best-selling author. Um, and we could probably spend two hours just talking about that, but I think we can, we can hit it quickly. Um, but I, I just want to know, you know, what inspired you in the very beginning, um, to, you know, go into the SEAL teams. Is that something from a very young age you wanted to do? Um, did you have that itch? Was there, was there a pivotal moment that, you know, made you realize that was it? Um, or was it just kind of off the cuff? You said, Hey, that sounds like fun. Let's go do it. Uh, Nope. It was, I think it was in my DNA. I think I was just born with it just in my blood. 
But if there was an outside influence, it was my grandfather who was killed in World War II off Okinawa in 1945. He was a Corsair pilot. So those are the planes that had the, the gold wings that would fold up that fit on aircraft carriers. So he was a Marine aviator. And there was a show on TV back then, late 70s. I caught it in syndication in the early 80s with my dad. And it was called Black Sheep Squadron with uh, Robert Conrad portraying Pappy Boynton, who was Medal of Honor recipient, who flew the same Corsair that my grandfather flew. And I grew up with his maps that they used to give aviators back then. So there were silk maps they gave them instead of paper maps. So if you hit the water in your plane and were on the E&E, you had the, just a, a wet piece of silk, essentially, instead of a paper map that would disintegrate. So I had those. I still have them today. Have his medals, pictures of him and his squadron. And I think just having those items and then having my connection, because obviously there's no Facebook, there's no Instagram, there's no internet. So if you didn't know someone or have a neighbor who served in World War II or who uh, knew your grandfather who didn't make it home, you couldn't really track down members of the squadron. So a lot of those kids who didn't have fathers after World War II, they didn't really have a connection with anyone who knew their dad in combat. So uh, today you can track down, obviously, people who served in the same platoon or squadron or whatever it might be. But back then, uh, that, that didn't exist. So our touch point with that generation was essentially popular culture, that TV show, movies about World War II. So that was very impactful to me, I think, growing up. And I always knew, hey, military is, uh, I'm going to the military for sure. And then I found out at the ripe old age of seven what SEALs were. And so that was the one that resonated. I said, okay, this is where I'm going. These are these are my people. And from that moment on, I started reading everything I could possibly read about SEALs. And back in the early 80s, mid 80s, there wasn't much. But my mom was a librarian, so we'd go down to the local library and anything that had something to do with Special Operations, SEALs, Army Special Forces, uh, Vietnam in particular, uh, I would just devour that. And I would purchase anything I could possibly purchase. Back a Soldier of Fortune magazine had a couple of Betamax tapes, maybe a couple of VHSs that showed a little bit of the training and a little bit of the history. So I just devoured all of that. And then at the same time, I start reading these books, these thrillers uh, by guys, David Morrell, who created Rambo back in 1972 with First Blood. Uh, A.J. Quinnell, J.C. Pollock, Mark Olden, Tom Clancy, Louis L'Amour, um, Stephen Hunter, all these guys who had protagonists with backgrounds that I wanted in real life one day. So if I'm reading a book by David Morrell, like Brotherhood of the Rose, I'm thinking, oh, this guy, he probably did some research into special operations. So I'm reading them as, uh, uh, as an education, but I'm also getting an education in the art of storytelling from the masters. And I knew that hey, I could do the military for a certain amount of time. Eventually, I'd have to do something else, and that's something else was going to be writing thrillers, the kind of like I was enjoying as a kid. So I was very clear from a really early age that I wanted to serve my country in uniform, specifically as a SEAL, and then write these thrillers. Yeah, that's go go ahead, Tom. And and Jack, was that something, so you saying not only did you know you wanted to go in the military at a young age, but then also become a writer, did you continue to kind of stoke that fire as you even progressed throughout your military career? Was that something you kind of shelved and said, okay, I'm focusing on the military and then I'll come back to this? Because it sounds like the reading really gave you a foundation, what would set you up um, to to do what you do now, but would love to hear you kind of talk through what that process looked like. Uh, Yeah, I've been a reader my whole life. I've never taken a pause uh, as far as being a reader. So all those guys I just mentioned, then once hit the 90s, I find uh, Michael Connolly. I find uh, in the later, later 90s, I find Daniel Silva. And then uh, Vince Flynn, and then later early 2000s, Brad Thor. So I'm always reading, constantly reading. And that really built that foundation. So I didn't look at it at back then as I'm going to read these so that I can be good at the writing part later. It was just pure enjoyment. And uh, I started reading the same kind of books my parents were reading. About fifth grade, I started to change from the young adult fiction into the regular adult fiction, the same kind like I, I write today. And, but by sixth grade, for sure, by age 11, 100%, I'm reading the same kind of books that my parents are reading. Uh, and I never stopped. And I continue to read those today, though today it's mostly uh, blurbs for other authors because there's very little time to just sit down, put my feet up in that, the hammock and spend a few hours in, in pages of other books. This just doesn't work that way right now with everything that I have going on. But, uh, but yeah, I didn't practice writing. I was a reader. And yes, I was always good at the writing. I was always a creative writing class I had or anything like that. That was, I naturally gravitated towards that. And that was very natural for me to do. But I think that's also because of the love of reading and that education I had already given myself as far as reading went. And then my mom had me watch a show uh, in, I want to say 1988. 
And it was a series of interviews that Bill Moyers did with Joseph Campbell called The Power of Myth. And I was introduced to his book called Hero with a Thousand Faces. And so once again, pretty early age, I'm reading that. So that's probably when I was maybe a freshman in high school. And uh, I learned about the hero's journey. And I learned about all these cultures uh, across the world who had never had any sort of interaction, but still had the same similar myth, um, mythologies as far as that hero's journey and passing along lessons. And they all had these certain elements that for some reason were very primal and uh, and still exist within us today, whether we realize it or not, when we watch a TV show, read a book, watch a movie, that sort of a thing. So it's, uh, so all that really came, came together as I was getting out of the military, all that reading that I had done, knowing what I wanted to do. And I didn't, I looked at them as really two distinctly different professions um, up until I started writing. So during my last year, year and a half, I start writing because I put my, I drop my papers. So for those listening or watching, when you drop your papers in the military, you got to go in a separate pile and your job <laughs> then becomes get out of this gigantic bureaucracy. And you go to medical and dental and get read out of secret programs and turn in gear and go to your tap class or transition class, whatever that thing is, totally useless or anyway, useless for me. It might be good for others. I'm not sure. But, uh, but in order to even go to those things, you have to then sit, you have to first stand in line to make your appointment. So it uh, it's a long process. You got to just go in this other pile. And so for me, I'm like, oh, this is a this is some time that I can use to write. I know exactly what I want to do. So I started writing then. But I it didn't realize until that point how much the experience in the military, particularly the feelings and emotions behind certain events that I was involved with downrange, were going to impact the writing. Uh, but as soon as I started to write, then I then it became very clear that. Uh, it was going to be a very therapeutic uh, experience to write these books, and uh, what I did downrange was going to was definitely going to impact. And these two uh, different parts of my life were uh, were, were really going to complement one another. And Jack, would you say uh, you mentioned hero's journey? Would you say in today's culture, um, and we can speak specifically about uh, America? Would you say that's something we've kind of lost? Is that that connection to, and, and I know like as a military member, I think that's a great example of kind of the transition from childhood to manhood um, and going through that that one part of the hero's journey. But would you say that that's something uh, kind of in culture today that like there would be extreme benefits to kind of reintegrating that way of thinking about the, the hero's journey and, and maybe even educating kids at a young age about what that process may look like and what the kind of archetypes are that are associated with that process? Yeah, when we talk about popular culture and we talk about its impact, not just on America, but on the world, um, the, that that hero's journey does, uh, if you think of the best films or the best books, if you really go back and study it, you'll, you'll find out that it, uh, they do have these certain certain elements that have been with us since uh, the first oral storytellers were passing along lessons learned from the hunt and from war around the, around the campfire to keep those uh, lessons alive through the medium of storytelling. Um, so those, they still exist. But today, there are so many distractions out there, unhealthy distractions out there. Um, and then when we talk about a, a personal journey and a rite of passage, I think that that's still within us. There's still that spark in our DNA because in cultures from the beginning of time up to now, there has been most of the time a certain period of time, let's say 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, somewhere in there where someone has to go through a rite of passage and prove their value to the tribe to be then accepted by that tribe. Uh, that's why I think Marine Corps boot camp stands out for, for so long as something that people, uh, young men in particular, aspire to go through, whether they know why or not, they want to serve their country, they want to do this, but it's also that rite of passage that's been within just us as a species from the beginning of time. So whether it's Marine Corps boot camp or it's uh, Army Special Forces Q course or it's, the, it's Ranger School or it's BUDS, uh, something that tests you is very natural to want to do and then be accepted by the tribe and in this case by a military unit that we're talking about in particular. So I think it's still there, but it's been so clouded by so many other distractions out there. And we're told, uh, I, I, whether it's intentional or not, that, that, yeah, you don't really need to do any of that sort of thing. Um, but uh, but it, when one time you had to, because otherwise you're gonna be shunned from that tribe because you had to add value to that tribe to survive. Uh, for that, and, and hopefully today we want to do more than just survive. We want to prevail, but uh, but back then, you're, to survive, to continue your uh, the bloodline, to continue the species, you had to prove your value to that tribe as a warfighter, as a hunter, something. Uh, and today, that's uh, it's not really there overtly, but I think that spark is still within us, which is why people still 
uh, aspire to make it through Marine Corps boot camp and some of those tests like that. Well, I'll tell you what, Jack, I think you just uh, gave us a good soundbite for a potential born primitive commercial because that <laughs> that what you just said right there is like what the basis of why we named the company born primitive is that, that exact mentality. You know, the fact that, you know, we have all these modern comforts and, you know, we got iPhones and air conditioning and all these nice things. But um, so we don't need that kind of innate savage like instinct anymore. But but it's still in there and it still exists. And, and I absolutely agree. Um, that that rite of passage it's almost like you're drawn to the challenge and i'm guessing that's a big reason why you wanted to go to buds because you wanted to see if you could hack it right and then once you get accepted into the brotherhood um you know you're, you're proud and now it's you're you become a gatekeeper of the same community right for the next batch of guys coming through and, and you may you hold the standard which is a pretty cool thing to be able to do so um yeah. well it's interesting yeah, jack cause yeah the library with my mom i remember my takeaways back then at age seven uh, from whenever there wasn't much back then so you could reach the end of the internet because it was the end of the library shelf uh <laughs> and i my takeaways were that hey this training called buds is some of the, the toughest training ever devised by a modern military and this uh this group of uh, called seals this unit is uh they're, they're touted anyway as some of the best special operators in the world so those two things those were my takeaways and so i was like these are my people um, so, uh, so yeah, that was, that was the draw, really, you know, the, to test yourself and learning those two things about buds and then about what you would do afterward. Mm, okay. I'm in. Heck yeah. Yeah. As you tell your story, Jack, it, it's like you literally became the perfect storm for, I think the success you've achieved now as an author, because you were very well read, right? You were, you were, you know, reading books all the time and sounds like in a subject matter that is related to what you write about now. But then you got to do, go do the real thing for like 20 years, right? And 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 kind of you know experience what that actually looks like. Um, so when you when you when you you know combine the two, um, it, it's it's not surprising you know the success you've achieved when you when you can you, you take those two skill sets and and now you put pen to paper. Um, so I'm I'm curious with the character James Reese for for those listening, you know James Reese is the is the main guy in the terminal list and an absolutely badass character. When was he born? Was this was this uh, something you had been thinking about for a long time? You know, in your military career, or did it? You know, I guess walk us through. Um, you know, when when he was developed, and, um, and and also like I guess in the early stages of writing, was there kind of a, a trial period where you had to throw a bunch of stuff out and then kind of hone your craft, or were you right out of the gates like feeling pretty confident in your abilities? I was feeling pretty confident right out of the gate. I mean, that's uh, that's let's say before I put pen to paper, let's say I started reading the same books my parents were in 1985, let's say. So from 1985 up until I started writing that first novel in December of 2014, I think I wrote the first words then. That's a long, long time of, to study. Uh, so that 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 overnight success was really, uh, and it was a reading before that too, although it was young adult fiction, but it's reading things like, uh, you know, My Side of the Mountain or Farley Mowat books, Lost in the Barrens and like all these young adult books. So that in turn, allowed me to then read the same kind of books my parents were reading uh, at age 10 and certainly by age 11. Um, so so it was, a, it was a long road as far as study goes, but it wasn't, I wasn't thinking of it in those terms back then. You know, I was just reading for the magic and I think it would be different if I was all of a sudden getting out of the military and I kind of maybe dabbled or I read a couple books here and there and I thought, oh, can you make some money at, at writing? What should I have been reading since 1985 in order to build this foundation and then go back but now I'm reading these books through a filter of the experiences that I've had, maybe uh, maybe a little more cynical, perhaps, or uh, whatever it might be. Uh, but I got to read those books uh, completely unfiltered because I'm 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. So I don't yet have that life experience built up. I'm just enjoying the magic of those pages. So it's pure, I think. That's that's the best way to put it. So that and that, I can't thank my, my parents enough for encouraging, not even just encouraging, me to read, but making it a natural part of my life. And I think that's different um, uh, than encouraging someone to read and making it a natural part of the day, just like eating food or going outside for some exercise or, or anything like that. Reading was a natural part of my life from day one. Uh, and then when I started to, to, to write, I think being so in tune with what I liked as a reader, what resonated with me as a reader, and not just as a reader, but as a, a viewer and a consumer of uh, popular culture in general, specifically movies and television shows, uh, I knew what I liked in a main character. I knew what I liked in supporting characters. I knew what I liked in antagonists. 
Um, I know what I liked as far as political thrillers and espionage thrillers uh, and where, where, where twists come in and what, uh, what a cliffhanger means and where it's appropriate and what it's not. So I just knew what I liked as a fan from the fan perspective of reading all these masters. So when I sat down, I wrote about six, seven, eight, nine, maybe 10 different one-page executive summaries for different storylines. Uh, all of them would have a character very similar to James Reese, but all of those storylines were different. And the one I wanted to start with was the third book, Savage Son, because in sixth grade, I read The Most Dangerous Game by Richard Connell, which is a short story written in the 1920s. And I knew that one day I would write a thriller that paid tribute to that short story. So Savage Son was one of those uh, executive summaries that I wrote out as an option. And I knew, though, that the characters weren't developed enough to explore the themes of that third novel, Savage Son, which is the dark side of man through the dynamic of Hunter and Hunted, uh, weren't quite ready yet. I needed to introduce world the world readers to these characters, specifically James Reese. And then eventually... They would be those characters would be developed enough to explore the themes of Savage Son. So even after the Terminalist, no, not quite ready yet. I thought it would be disingenuous to the reader to just pick James Reese up and drop him into this new scenario after all the traumatic events of the Terminalist. So I had to take him on a journey of redemption, of violent redemption. And then at the end of True Believer, that's when I realized that he was ready for Savage Son. So all those different executive summaries that I wrote out in, let's say, late 2014. Uh, those have become the other, most, not all of them, but some of them have become the other novels, morphed a bit because of all the, 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 the creative energy that has gone into developing the characters and the other storylines up to that point. But, uh, but I just knew what I liked in the main character. I knew I wanted someone who was interesting, who was likable, but who could also flip that switch and get the job done and didn't just happen to stumble into it and all of a sudden be in this situation uh, and have no background that would allow him to then solve these problems very aggressively and oftentimes very violently. Uh, so I wanted him to be somebody who you want to sit down and have a coffee with, have a beer with, have a bourbon with, but also somebody could flip that switch and get it done. And, and in 2014, Jack, did, did you find that when you flipped on that writing switch, did, did it flow right away? Or was that something I think right away to like Stephen Pressfield and like calling on the muse and sitting down and having the routine? Was that something you kind of had to work out with it being kind of a, a big transition from the military? Um, or, or was it like, no, you sat down 2014 and, and the, those characters, the stories, they, they kind of flowed out of you? Or, or was that a slow buildup to, to now where I'm sure you have uh, kind of a different process for what that looks like? Well, the process has remained fairly similar. Um, and I, I credit those authors who I read in the 80s and, and 90s with um, really giving me that foundation. But when it comes to, uh, say, Stephen Pressfield's The Muse or uh, uh, a schedule or a process, um, I didn't read too many books on how to. I read all those Stephen Pressfield books that were out at the time, and I've continued to read those uh, his nonfiction works on creativity uh, since, since then. So back then it was War of Art, Turning Pro, Do the Work, Authentic Swing, uh, Warrior Ethos. I think those were the ones that were out at the time, and now there's a few more in that series. So I read those once, uh, made a couple couple notes, and I had them close by uh, behind my computer as I was writing. So I had them for whatever reason. I, I had them close by. I read Stephen King's On Writing um, and uh, David Morell's The Successful Novelist, but I think that was it. And Because today you can read about how to do something essentially until the end of time. Eventually you have to execute. So for me, and everybody's going to have a different uh, amount of time that they spend studying something before they dive in. Uh, mine was, hey, read those. Uh, and that was pretty much it. I read On Writing before I'd read um, the Stephen Pressfield Warrior Ethos and World Art when they came out. And then right before I sat down to write, I think I read his other three but uh, I also heard him on a podcast say that, it was Rogan's podcast, say that he would write down the theme of his novels on a yellow sticky on his typewriter as he started to work. And it was one word. And now that I'm friends with Stephen Pressfield, I realized that's not at all what he said, but that's how I translated it. So I wrote revenge down on a yellow sticky, put it on my <laughs> computer, and I wrote revenge without constraints. So I, I thought I was cheating a little bit because uh, it wasn't one word. Um, but that guided the writing process. So it means that uh, either directly or indirectly, more importantly, indirectly, everything had to tie back to that theme of revenge without constraint. And I think that really kept me on track, uh, having that theme. And each of the novels has had a specific theme since then. So that's part of the process. But I thank Stephen Pressfield for that. But now that we're friends, he told me he was telling a story about a playwright in New York who would do something similar, who would write a few sentences to keep him on theme. So I totally misinterpreted it somehow, but I'm glad that I did because it really kept me 
on track. And uh, now today I have, sometimes it's a sentence, but it's, it's a specific theme for each novel that keeps me on track. And I take those executive summaries, uh, title, uh, one page executive summary, theme, and title. Those are the first things that I have. So I'm not wasting bandwidth, worried about where this thing's going to go, what the theme of this novel is. Well, I've had eight good titles up to now. I really need to find another good one. That's wasted bandwidth. It's not going into the story. So I have that. And then I take that one page executive summary, turn it into an outline. And then I take that outline and turn that into the narrative. So that's been the process for each one of the books. And it seems to, to work well for me. That's so cool. And that, that post-it note story. That's and definitely you, you, you've stayed true to the theme. So you, well done on that one. Um, so, so yeah. Jack, when, when did the first book get published? I know, I believe you got out of the uh, teams in 2016, right? Yeah. And June start- 2016 got out. Uh, book was pretty much done by then. I needed a couple more months of editing, just me reading it and rereading it, stepping away from it for a week, coming back to it. Um, so I got it as good as I could possibly get it. And then I sent it to New York in uh, November of 2016. And then uh, Emily Bessler, Emily Bessler Books, Atria Simon & Schuster. That's also, I looked my, being in the military, I had my target list, but I only had one person on that target list as far as who I wanted to publish my novels. And that was Emily Bessler at Simon & Schuster, her own imprint called Emily Bessler Books. And I got her name from the back of books by Brad Thorne and Vince Flynn. They were both thanking someone named Emily Bessler. And I thought, oh, Emily Bessler will be my uh, publisher and editor. And sure enough, she she is today. And so got it to her. She loved it. Flew out to New York in December of 2016. And I think she just wanted to make sure I wasn't a crazy person. So we sat down and had uh, had coffee for uh, a good couple hours. And uh, she said, yeah, she, won- she wanted it and she wanted to publish it, but uh, I needed an agent. And I didn't know I needed one. Usually you get an agent first and then they take it, but I had no idea because I'm coming from the military. I have no, I, no touch points with Hollywood or no touch points with publishing at all, no personal connections. Um, and I said, oh, great. How do I get one of those? And she said, well, I'll introduce you to a couple and you, you choose one. So uh, that's how that's how that went down. But I, you know, we're not, or I wasn't anyway. I had one suit. Um, somebody gave it to me for my uh, retirement. And so I went to New York and I'd heard that you hang these suits up with the wrinkle because I just shoved it in a bag. And so you hang it up in uh, uh, like a, in the bathroom and close the door or whatever and have the steam and it's supposed to get the wrinkles out. So this is December of 2016. So New York, so it's freezing. And so I put it in there and I went to the other room to do something or whatever. And I opened the door. This thing is soaked. Like it is dripping wet. I, I guess you're not supposed to close the door. Or you're, I guess I kept it in too long. I don't know. But it was just, it was just soaking wet. And I'm like, oh man, I can't be late. And I want to get there early so that I can get a good seat or a table at this place. And so I put this suit on. I don't have an overcoat. I don't have anything like that that most people in New York or gloves or anything. So I just go into the street with this you know, kind of thin suit that I got from my retirement and uh, and just immediately it's like a sheet of ice. <laughs> I distinctly remember how old I was making my way into the streets of New York to go to this coffee shop where I'm going to meet Emily Bessler. And I get there early and I'm just like shaking and I find <laughs> the table. I give the, uh, uh, the, the it's it's more of like a restaurant than, than a coffee shop, but it's a, with a coffee theme to it, I guess. And uh, so I, I I have all the table, and so that's the one I want. And then I, I tip the, the the person at the front there. I forget how much it was, probably probably like twenty bucks, forty bucks, fifty. I don't even know what it was. Maybe it was even a hundred. I don't know. I really wanted to like do everything I possibly could. And uh, so as soon as those people got up, boom, he got me in there. I sat down and and uh, kind of dried off a little bit uh, while I waited for her to show up. And anyway, we went from there. Too funny. It's you turn out to shiver as you're maybe one of the biggest <laughs> meetings of your life. Exactly. That's all. Yeah. And obviously, so it, it went well, you know, they, they took it on. And then and then what was the time gap between when it was actually released? And I, I'd be curious to know what your mindset was on the lead up to that, because I would imagine you were probably wondering, like, all right, is this going to be a total flop or is this thing going to kill it? Like, I guess, what was your what were you thinking was going to happen? Um, and then and then what was that time period and when did it go live? And then when did you think, oh, wow, this might I might actually be onto something here? Yeah, so I it so that meeting was December of 2016. Book came out March of 2018, uh, so a little less than a year and a half. But uh, I was already in both two by then. I'd already flown to Africa, uh, gone to Mozambique, but boots on the ground there because Mozambique was going to be such a uh, uh, important part of the second novel. And so I was already working on the second one, even though I didn't have a, a deal on the first one. And I was uh, in Africa, uh, talking to professional hunters, talking to the trackers, taking pictures of the the rocks and the dirt and the trees and the grasses and uh, getting the history of the area and the, the politics of the area and just 
uh, it was an amazing experience, but taking all those notes and language, I wanted, I didn't know exactly how I was going to work different phrases in, but there are so many different languages spoken in Mozambique. So, uh, I, I wrote down a bunch of different phrases I thought I might use. And then I asked uh, tr the trackers and the professional hunters to, to, uh, translate all those for me. So I came back with a big stack of, of notes and, and photos. And, uh, so I was well into the second novel by then, by the time I had that meeting and I got that from the story of John Grisham. So John Grisham wrote in Time to Kill first, and he couldn't give that book away. Uh, and then he writes The Firm, and The Firm takes off, huge bestseller, Tom Cruise stars in the movie. Then they reprint uh, Time to Kill, Matthew McConaughey stars in that, and then we've had a John Grisham novel every year since. But in that story, I thought, hey, what if he just, he was an attorney, and I thought, what if he just uh, stopped? Because he was like, oh, I can't, no one's reading this book, People, this isn't resonating with people. And I think A Time to Kill is his finest work, but uh, it didn't, for whatever reason, didn't take off right away. So I thought, what if he got discouraged, didn't write the firm? He might still be in some cubicle somewhere, probably not. He'd be a partner in a law firm or, or whatever, maybe a politician. But uh, we wouldn't have a John Grisham novel every year, and he wouldn't do be doing what he loves to do. So he stuck with it. He wrote that second book, and then, bam, off he goes to the races. So I always had that in my head. Uh, I always knew I would write two, and then if both of them didn't hit, then I was going to reevaluate my choices, but I was always going to put uh, all my heart and soul into every single word of those first two books. And then, oh, okay, that's not working. Well, okay, I'll take a breath here and, and figure some things out. But uh, but that didn't, uh, the first one hit, and the second one hit, then boom, just kept going. That's awesome. So you were you were already getting a second horse in the race before the the, the race had even been been done yet. That That's super cool. And then you said in 2018, it, it went live, the first one. In, in, March 2018. Okay. And then how quickly did you know this is successful? I mean, I don't know in the book world, like if you can tell in the first week, if there's metrics they're sending you, um, or did it take a little bit longer to, to get traction since you were a new author? Yep. Cause there's no, I'm not coming from politics. I'm not coming from sports. I didn't write an autobiography first to have a platform, zero social media presence. So I'm starting at zero. Um, so part of their calculate, their calculus was only the book when Simon and Schuster decided to, to take it on. It's not like, hey, this guy's got a following or this guy's got a podcast or this guy's coming from politics or he just retired from X number of years in the NFL, okay? So we can now um, uh, say, well, if he has this many people listening or this many people following, then X number will buy this book. Okay, this makes sense for us as a business to invest in this person. There was zero. There was no, it made no sense for them to invest in me other than they believed in the story. Um, so... That also, that means I didn't come from publishing as an editor or an assistant or an executive or anything like that. So any numbers to me didn't mean anything. Like I have nothing to say to, to juxtapose it to, nothing to compare it to. So I have no no clue. So what I did and what I still do today with numbers, because I don't want to waste time uh, in in the, those kind of details. I want everything going into the story. Um, the way I judge if something is, uh, I guess, successful or, or hitting or whatever is how excited Simon & Schuster is about it. If they're excited about it, then I know I'm on the right track. Boom, I'm just all into the story. So that's my 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 metric is how excited Simon & Schuster is about these books and they're very excited about them. So that's a, a good sign for me. So now I now after being in it from since 2018 and now I can kind of look at, at numbers and look at first week and um, I can compare it to what I've learned over the past few years. So, so now I can do that and uh, and all is well, I guess, is the best way to, to put it. And, and how long after Jack did the the kind of TV series was that? Was there some time gap in between that release and then when that kind of was on the table, or w w what did that kind of look like? Yeah, well, it all goes back to uh, to the SEAL teams. And uh, as I sat down to write, um, because I'm a child of the '80s, and we talked about popular culture earlier, um, it was very natural for me to immediately choose who's going to star in this book that I've now written one sentence of uh, in the in the movie adaptation or series adaptation and who's going to direct. So I sat down typing away and I think Zero Dark Thirty had come out maybe, I forget what year it came came out, a year, maybe two years, anyway, right around that time frame-ish. Uh, so I'd seen this guy, Chris Pratt, play a seal and I heard he was in this show called uh, Parks and Rec. And so I was like, oh, this guy in Parks and Rec and then look at him in Zero Dark Thirty playing a seal wow, that, he's a totally different person, but in both, inherently likable. And I think I read something somewhere, I think it maybe have been a, I think I, I did a little maybe research and something popped up about um, him being, uh, being a, a guy's guy, being an American. 
And so I chose, I thought, Chris Pratt, this will be the guy uh, because I didn't want someone who, and of course, this is me saying all this, I have one sentence written at this point, <laughs> uh, connections anywhere. So I thought, yeah, Chris Pratt needs to do this for his career. This is before Guardians of the Galaxy, this is before Jurassic World, this is before any of, of that, before Lego movies and, and A-list stardom. And I thought, I don't want someone to play this role who's already done these types of roles before. I want the right person for this. And for me, Chris Pratt was the guy. So since I'm choosing my uh, my star, I figure I should probably choose my director. And I thought Antoine Fuqua, that's who I want to direct this thing. And so that's as much thought as I put into it is I'm, I'm typing away. And so in my head, I had I didn't have James Reese as Chris Pratt. I had Chris Pratt playing James Reese, which is a, a different different thing. And then I've loved everything Antoine has done. Um, and then November of 2017, so uh, a few months before the book comes out, I get a call from a, a SEAL buddy that I hadn't talked to in about five years. And he calls and says, uh, uh, just texted with him this morning. And uh, uh, he calls and says, hey, man, uh, do you remember me? And I said, yeah, Jared, of course I remember you. How are you doing? And he says, uh, hey, man, I've, I've been wanting to call you for years and thank you for what you did for me and the SEAL teams. And in my head, I couldn't even remember. Um, and he said, well, yeah, you, you probably don't remember, but uh, you're the only person when uh, you found out that I was getting out of the military that asked me to come to your office, sit down, uh, talk about transitioning from the military to the private sector. You introduced me to people in the private sector and the field I wanted to get into. Then you followed up with me to find out how things were going. And I always wanted to thank you. And I was like, dude, no problem. How, how did I, How's it going? And he said, uh, it's going great, but I heard you have a book coming out. I said, yeah, it's coming out in a few months called The Terminal List. I have a galley copy, which is like a rough draft that I can uh, I can send to you. And he said, I'd like that, but I'd like to give it to a friend of mine. And I said, yeah, no problem. Who's that? And he said, Chris Pratt. I was like, oh, that's uh, very convenient for me because uh, that's what I imagined playing this role. So I sent it to Jared. Jared read it. He loved it. He gave it to Chris Pratt in December of 2017. And uh, I have a picture of Chris Pratt reading it for the first time. And then Chris calls the first week in uh, January of 2018, wanting to option it. So, uh, and at the same time, another SEAL buddy had given a copy to Antoine. And so Antoine wants it at the same time, like right on Chris's heels. And uh, he found out Chris already had it. And so they are friends from doing um, Magnificent Seven together. So Antoine called Chris and said, hey, man, let's do this together. I know you want it. So let's, let's, um, let's do it. And so now we're all three executive producers on this thing. And uh, as soon as the writer strikes over, we'll dive back into a spinoff origin story series with a Ben Edwards character and then roll right into second novel, True Believer starring Chris Pratt. Yeah, we talk about sometimes better to be lucky than good, but but you know you were both in that case. But it, it's cool that the theme I want to extract from that is, you know, the the people that achieve success in whatever discipline or field it is. I think one common theme you see a lot is that there was a roadmap they had laid out on how they were going to get there, um, and they're, they're almost you know being a visionary. So it's so crazy before you even had a book published, before you even had a book written. You were already thinking about like what the the next um, you know kind of tier of that was, and to the point of like you were identifying what actor you wanted to play James Reese, um, and and that's just a super fascinating you know cool to hear, one here's the story of how it came together, which was you know a little bit luck through a, a mutual friend, and maybe you would have got there regardless. Um, but uh, but that that's just really cool to hear you know how it played out, and obviously that, then you know the the actual show was totally epic for anyone who hasn't watched it and needs to binge a series absolutely hit the terminal list on, on Amazon prime. It's, it's awesome. Yeah. And, and Jack, yeah. Would, would you use the word luck? Cause I, I would kind of use a different, like it's almost, I mean, bear said it there, like visionary. Then also it is strange at times how the universe works when you kind of lay out that vision, how you do become or become what I would call like a magnet for those, those things to, to eventually kind of come into your life. Would you, what, what, which way do you lean? Do you lean towards, Oh, it's just dumb luck or, have you seen even in the writing process then other things in your life that when you have that clear vision that there is a way that you can kind of draw those things close to you even if it's in in ways you never thought possible yeah well the product no matter what it is has to be the best that it can possibly be before any of those supporting efforts can even get off the ground the product has to be there in this case that's a that's a book but for jared like what if i had didn't what if i was one of those guys in the in the seal teams that was like oh he's getting out you know screw him quitter like that is very prevalent in the seal community um, and for whatever reason, and I was always the other way, uh, meaning if someone wanted to get out, if they were a good guy, uh, whether they're staying in or getting out, I'm going to do everything in my power to, to help them. Uh, so it didn't matter if they're staying in and getting out, you're a good dude. I'm going to do everything I can to help you. Um, 
But I also saw that a lot of others were not that way. And it was the exact opposite. And I never quite understood that. Even being in rooms, just hearing people talk about it at some of those senior levels, oh, so-and-so, he's a, you know, this chief just is, is getting out, you know, he's, he's, he's quitting. Like he just did three or four or five deployments and he's done his 20 years and he's decided to get out. And in my head, I'm thinking, why are these guys talking about this amazing chief who just dropped his, dropped his papers or, you know, whatever, uh, and is on his, wants to just move on. It's time to, time to move on. And I always thought that was so odd. Anyway, point being, uh, I like to, to help people and I wanted to help Jared. He was a solid guy. And, and years later, but I didn't do it like thinking, huh? You, you know, someday I'm going to write this book and he's going to, uh, I'm going to pick an actor and uh, maybe Jared's going to know this guy and it'll come back to me later. No, it was just, hey, I want to help Jared out. He's a good dude. Um, and so that's how it all, that's how it all came back. So I don't know. I, I kind of talk to the kids about it and I say, I never miss an opportunity to make somebody's day. Um, so that's kind of, you know, I don't know. I've been doing it for a while, but just naturally. And I never really thought about it in those terms until Jared and I reconnected uh, and then things went down the path that they that they did but i think yeah never missed an opportunity to make somebody's day um and not because it's going to come back to you but just because it's a good thing to do yeah jack one thing i wanted to ask about is is um you know i think for people that are pursuing something and you know you you, you see where that next ridge line is and you, you know you're going to do anything you got to do to get there and I, I think what what happens a lot is you never actually step back and, and kind of admire your handiwork, right? It's because as soon as you get to that ridge line, it's you're on to the next one, right? Um, and I know that's been very true for me with Born Primitive. Um, and and I, I, I don't think, honestly, once I've stepped back consciously and been like, holy crap, like, look at what you guys have built. It's always, what's the next challenge? What's the next thing we're going to conquer? And while I think it's good to have that mentality, like, because it's, you know, it drives you to, to keep pushing the pace and, and, and not settle and be just um, content. But, but in a way, I, I think it's a bit flawed too. Um, and, and I wonder, you know, have you been able to kind of, you know, acknowledge these, these accolades and these kind of these pivotal moments where you should probably stop and celebrate? Or are you kind of like me where it's, you're on to the next book, you're on to the next challenge, you're, you're building your podcast, and I guess for, for people listening that might have that same kind of issue, you know, what can we do to, to, to make sure we step back, you know, step back and kind of smell the roses a little bit every once in a while? I don't know, uh, <laughs> because I haven't, uh, you maybe for a second here or there possibly, but uh, not, not really. Um, and same thing in the SEAL teams, like, hey, you have a great workup, an incredible deployment, you bring everybody back, you have some lessons learned, you pass those on. Uh, you're on your, uh, you know, post-deployment leave or whatever. Uh, you know, I never sat back and was like, oh man, that was, that was amazing. Um, this here, no, it was all just lessons learned. How am I going to apply them going forward? What's the enemy doing right now? How are they adapting to those things, those lessons that I just passed on? Because certainly the enemy is adapting. Um, and then how am I going to do it better next time? Uh, how am I going to be a better operator tomorrow than I was today? How am I going to be a better leader tomorrow than I was today? Um, so there was never a break even in the SEAL teams just from thinking those things through um, regardless of what you were involved with um, and uh, same thing today and I you know maybe it's, it's great to step back maybe I but I don't know how to do that uh, yet maybe I'll have to at some point but right now it's a full-on sprint every single day um, and three kids and and all that so you got you know we talked a little bit about some some balance or whatever I'm not I mean they yeah I'm not going down range so that I know that the things that I do aren't life and death. So that's different uh, than the SEAL teams. And the SEAL teams, that pendulum had to be on the side of the team. Uh, and it was important for me to talk to my wife about that and for her to understand that that's how it was going to be. And I think for us, uh, we were married before September 11th, so in 2000. And uh, so she'd been a part of the, the you know, she went through a workup with, you know, the whole show. She knew the community. She knew the, you know, what you did as an officer and what you did as enlisted and what you, where you went on deployments and kind of, you know, all those sorts of things. And then September 11th happens and the whole model of post-Vietnam up to September 11th changes. And to be a part of that together, not just as a platoon troop, but as families, like they had to adjust and figure this out too with us at the same time. So I think that was really um, was really important for us, for her to be a part of that and then understand 
that that pendulum is going to be on the side of the team because I'm taking these guys downrange. That's what I owe them. That's what I owe their families. That's what I owe the team, the mission, the country. Um, and that's just how it has to be. Every waking moment is going to be about being the best operator and leader that I can be. Um, and I think that also helps now on the outside. I didn't think about it really in these terms while I was in, but there are no regrets as far as if something had gone south downrange, I wouldn't be back here today thinking if only I'd spent another hour on the range, if only I'd read that one other book on Afghanistan or the enemy, or read that one more after action report or ran that old course like one more time, or there is none of that because I put all of my heart and soul into being the best operator I could possibly be every single second for all of those 20 years. Um, but when it came time to uh, get out, that was different. I realized, oh, for the first time, I'm not responsible for, and I'm at Bud's, all right? So Bud's is like, okay, push-ups, sit-ups, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, so I'm not taking guys down range. I'm not responsible for a platoon or for a troop or a task unit. And that was very different for me. And then, you know, dropping the papers to get out, obviously things changed. But uh, so that pendulum can swing back towards the family, but I'm still working. I want to be a better author today than I was yesterday. I want to do everything I'm doing today better than I was yesterday. Um, but I also know, hey, if I mess something up, that's okay. No one's coming home in a body bag because of a sentence that I screw up or uh, or a post that I do that uh, could have been better or whatever. Uh, it's it's different, but both are similar in that I'm not taking a step back and resting. And maybe someday I'll have to. I know I'm going to have to start working out again, eating right and getting some more sleep here at some point just because it's going to be a necessity. Uh, but up to this point, it's been a full on sprint every single day, but I'll still love it. Uh, and I also have nobody, there's no boss, which is also fantastic. Um, and I'm writing for the story. I'm not writing because I'm like, oh, well, what, uh, what's going to resonate with readers? What's, what's, what, what's popular right now? Um, what, well, am I going to alienate a certain section of my readership if I say this, or if he says this, I don't consider any of that. It is all 100% about the story. And that's how I honor people's time who have decided to spend it with me. And that's time they're never going to get back. And they're going to spend that either listening to the book on audio or in the pages of the novel or listening to the podcast or following me on social. So I feel a responsibility uh, to them to have all of those things be the best that they can possibly be. Um, and uh, But I have not taken a step back. But eventually, maybe I will. But it's not time for that right now. What's a, what's a normal day look for, like right now for you, Jack? They're all different because, well, when I'm writing um, and I don't have any of the other distractions, it's up and getting the kids to school and then writing, uh, maybe writing before I even get them to school, but then writing all day, no break uh, until I have to do something like pick them up from a sporting event after school or whatever it might be. And then once they're in bed, then it's quiet in the house and I'm writing uh, again as late as I can. And then I'm up early. So it's maybe not the most healthy but um, right now with three three kiddos and wife and everything else, it's just how it has to how it has to be, especially when there are scripts. And right now there's a writer strike, so it allows me to now focus on the book on book seven rather than having to juggle any scripts right now. So uh, I'm trying to get as much done as I can on book seven before the writer strike ends, and uh, I dive back in on the scripts for this origin story that we're, we'll film. Uh, well, depending on the writer strike, we'll, we'll, we'll see, uh, when we start filming that, but, um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's go, go, go from the second I wake up until the second I go to bed. And whether, if I'm not writing, it's a, a podcast week or a podcast two weeks, uh, and then I'm doing that, or I'm reading somebody's book who is uh, going to come on the podcast, or I'm coming up with some questions for somebody who's going to uh, come on the podcast, um, or I'm doing research for my novel, or, uh, I'm doing, uh, doing the, putting the social calendar together or I'm writing a blog for the website or I'm reading somebody else's book for a blurb. So there's not really a, a, a battle rhythm to the day yet. And eventually I think I'll get to the point where I, I still feel like I'm in uh, well, I felt like I was in the garage, like starting a company in the garage, like a computer company in 1977, where the people have to, have, the thing has to work and has to be the best it can be. But then you have to be the CEO, the CFO, the CMO. If there was social media, you'd be the social media manager while you're creating these things and tinkering away to make it better in your garage. But eventually, wow, people are hearing about it. And okay, now it's growing. And now you have to make 10 of these, 100 of these things, 50,000 of these things, whatever. And you got to move from that garage at that point and you got to move somewhere else. And then you have to have some other people who can help you with certain parts of these, of these things. So I think I'm at that stage where I need... Uh, uh, a couple people to come in and help do some of the things that I don't have to do so I can focus on the writing um, and, and the books and the screenplays 
and the things that nobody else uh, can do, things that I have to do. Um, so anyway, I think, I, I think it's at that stage right now. But uh, but today, those people don't exist. So it's uh, me doing juggling all that stuff. But I do have an amazing team at Simon & Schuster, amazing publicist, David Brown, amazing publisher, editor, Emily Bessler. So I have that uh, that team at Simon & Schuster. And then for the podcast, all the, all the technical things, that's ironclad. They, uh, I don't know how to make a graphic. Uh, I don't know how to upload a podcast. I don't know how to edit anything. So uh, so though I, I do, uh, the, the experts do those things. And uh, so that's extremely helpful. I, I think it's a great example though of, of, I mean, just talking to you, it's obvious how passionate you are about what you do. And you, you talk to some of your friends or individuals and it's like they work an eight hour workday and they're absolutely exhausted from that. And like, of course, nothing wrong with that, but to hear your story about you're working until three in the morning, getting up, doing the kids thing, and maybe I'm sure working 15 hours a day sometimes and and still are able to do it without looking or sounding exhausted. It's a kind of a testament and a cool little case study towards like when you're doing something you're extremely passionate about, it's almost like you receive uh, an extra little boost there that when you're doing something that is just, you're just dragging yourself through that, that there's no way you would be able to work like you do when, when you're passionate about something. Yeah. And we have electric. So it's, I think it's really about, uh, identifying that passion. Luckily I was able to identify both of mine early in life, serving my country and writing, um, identifying that passion. And this doesn't have to be a military transition. It can be a transition, right? It can be a divorce, uh, just changing jobs, whatever, it, whatever it is, uh, identifying that passion and then that mission to give you a purpose going forward. So, uh, for me, my mission is taking care of my family, specifically a middle child with some really severe special needs who needs 24-7 full-time care forever. That's my mission. Uh, my passion is writing. So I combine those two things together to give me purpose going forward. So I think about that every day and uh, and having something I'm passionate about, um, uh, be able to drive that mission. I think I am extremely fortunate that, uh, that I was able to identify those so clearly so early on and, uh, and, and not waste any time in a transition Just thinking, oh, well, I got a job offer in Oklahoma city at a, at a law office or something. Uh, I guess I'll go give it a shot. Uh, we'll take the LSAT, spend a lot of time doing that. Okay. I got into these law schools or whatever. Okay. And now I'm in my first job and I hate it after I invested all this time because I saw a movie about uh, lawyers or read one book about it or my family wanted me to do it or I thought I could make some money at it and my family needed me and now I'm just miserable. So I haven't identified my passion. Yeah, the mission, but not the passion. Um, so I think identifying that passion and that mission are extremely important no matter what kind of transition you're making in life. You know, and I think with that is also the acknowledgement that you know it's going to take good old-fashioned hard work along the way. And, and also, you know, I think... When I look at kind of current society, there's almost this instant gratification demand, right? And, um, you know, it's kind of the, the old must be nice thing when they see someone who has kind of ascended to success. And what they don't see is for you, you know, the late nights, you know, in your house, three o'clock in the morning, you know, jamming coffees, trying to, you know, write a novel, particularly in the early days when there was probably uncertainty is, hey, is this actually going to produce any financial output for my family or am I, you know, just writing two novels and putting, you know, hundreds of hours into this. So I, I think, you know, that's the other the lesson I think from all this is, is find a passion, you know, pick a, you know, get your, get your, your bearing and, and, and move out on it, but also the acknowledgement that, Hey, there's going to be some rough patches along the way. Um, and you can't turn back at the first sign of resistance. Um, now obviously oh, exactly. you, you can't be foolish. Like eventually you might, have to acknowledge, hey, this isn't the gig, right? We, we don't <laughs> yeah. want to put in eight years into something and eventually it fizzles out. But you see so many of those success stories um, where it wasn't the first time um, they achieved success. And the, the John Grisham example is actually really cool that you gave that had it not been for that second book, um, you know, maybe we don't even know who that guy is. And, and you kind of followed his model, get us getting that second horse in the race before you even knew if the first one was going to be any good. So um, yeah, you know, that's that's really fascinating. Um, I wanted to I guess why study like no in my case understanding the history of my my genre um, have done that reading understand the seminal books that moved the genre forward but it's really any um, any industry that you're going into is studying the history of that industry know who the players were uh, because now you're they're, you're taking their lessons and you're building upon the foundation that they built instead of you're going to make mistakes of course and uh, you're going to get knocked down of course both in uh, in business and in life. Uh, it's going to, it's going to come hitting hard and you're going to have to get back up, but you get to decide then how you're going to get back up. Are you going to get back up moaning and complaining about how life dealt you a bad hand? 
or are you going to get it back up and be a positive influence on those around you, on your circle, no matter how many people that is, whether it's a, a wife and three kids or it's uh, 30 million people on social media. Um, you get to decide how you're going to get back up. You're really not going to get to decide if you're going to get hit or not. You're going to take some blows. Uh, but uh, but you do get to decide how you're going to get back up and how you're going to influence those those around you. Absolutely. I got one uh, one more question from my end, Jack. It's, it's a little bit abstract, but you know, as Tony and I have kind of talked through topics on this, one thing I always go back to that we're, we're both kind of, you know, fairly new dads, you know, I got like a two and a half year old and um, what's your 15 months, 15 months, one on the way. Yeah. So we're, we're kind of and, in that like early dad mode. And, and right now I'm just trying to be a sponge because I realize there's no playbook for this. So any types of tidbits I can get from other people that I think of are, you know, have a few years on me, I, I try to take advantage of that. But um, you know, one thing I reflect on as I, you know, think about raising my daughter is, you know, we, we obviously want to provide comfort, you know, for our, for our kids and we want, you know, their life to be better, better than ours. Right. And that's why we make these sacrifices in hopes that we can provide them, you know, things that maybe we didn't have. Um, but I, I, I think in that process, um, there could be some risk there of, of overdoing it and making life too comfortable. And for particularly, yeah. you know, for people that have maybe achieved some financial stability and success, um, there's a lot of things that you can, you know, use uh, with that money to create comfort for your family. And, and some of them are probably well-intended and other ones, you know, if, if it became too much, the character of, of your kids might end up being altered and maybe they're not as resilient as they should be when, they, when they're adults and they got to stand on their own two feet. So, you know, how, how do you balance that? Is that something you think about, you know, because I'm sure you know, you could always be, probably be flying in first class and this and that and nannies and that. And, you know, there's there's some easy buttons you can hit that provide comfort. Um, but the way I was raised was to be scrappy. And, you know, we were mowing lawns from an early age. And, you know, my parents always made us do chores and that. I mean, there, there was no, you know, no exceptions to that. And I think that armed me for later on in life when I really had to, to get after it on my own. So so how do you approach that? Particularly, you know, you've, you've climbed the ladder, you're doing well. You got a lot of irons in the fire right now. Um, how do you balance that? Yeah, it's tough. It's a it's a thing, um, and you know each kid is different. Every family situation is different, um, so it's it's tough to you know give like a, a list of things that uh, that that work or, or don't work. But it certainly is a is a concern. You want your kids to to grow up and to be able to take that hit we just talked about earlier and not completely crumble. Um, but we had two like so we have two distinctly different uh, examples essentially because our daughter grew up in the SEAL teams. And uh, so that's very different. When I'm taking her hunting in the SEAL teams, um, we're flying Spirit Airlines, you know, and we're, uh, we're, we're, we're scrapping and staying in the not, not very nice hotel on the way to uh, the ranch or whatever we're, whatever we're doing. Um, different with our youngest. And our middle child with special needs, you know, he's a different example. But, but uh, the youngest one, uh, yep, he grew up for a little bit there in Coronado uh, with the teams, but then his formative type years now uh, are not that. Uh, and we're in, you know, these kids have grown up in resort towns, essentially, uh, Coronado, California and Park City, Utah, not, not bad places to grow up. So what I try to do is travel and so they can see, so they came to, to, uh, to Africa with me in 2019, the whole family came and, uh, we're going through different villages and, and that sort of thing in there. Uh, so hopefully what they're getting is an appreciation for what we have here. Um, and then doing best defense foundation with our daughter. And unfortunately, by the time our, our youngest is, he's 12 now, he's old enough to do that. They're not, those World War II veterans are not going to be, or now he'll maybe get to help out with the Vietnam veterans, um, taking them back to, to Vietnam and that sort of a thing. So uh, I'm going to continue to do that with him. I think that's so, so important. But with him also, a lot more distractions than there were with our daughter. Uh, just with with all those different inputs coming through that phone, because that's how those kids communicate, especially during COVID when they had to log on to do schoolwork or whatever else. It's uh, it's tough, but it's all a struggle. But I think in the end, we just do the best we can. And so at the end of the day, my wife and I sit down together and we just know, hey, if we're doing the best we can, um, you can only do so much. And, uh, and as long as you're thinking about all these things and and trying to do the best job you can as a parent and being present, I think that's the one thing. No matter what other factors are out there, if we can be present when we're actually there. And it's tough for me as an author because I'm working through problem sets always in the uh, from the page. Um, and it's much like on the on the ground in Iraq or Afghanistan. I'm solving problems very aggressively, but I'm looking at, I'm adapting to the enemy as they're adapting to me. I'm looking for gaps in the enemy's defenses. Um, but I'm doing that same thing as an author, just on the written page. But when I come down from my office or whatever it is, and we're having dinner, 
I'm still working those problem sets through in the back of my mind. So I'm very cognizant of the fact that I need to really work on being present all the time when I'm around those kiddos. So it's, uh, I think at the end of the day, hey, we're just all doing the best we can. Absolutely. Tony, you got anything else for Jack? No, I, th- I think I'm good to go. Well, Jack, thank you so much. I know you're a very busy man. You know, you took time on a, on a Friday to, to tune in and speak with us. Um, so, you know, congratulations on all your success. You know, I think you're you're somebody that had you ended it at 2016, it would have been a hell of a success story. And, and um, turns out you were just getting started. So uh, we're really excited to see, you know, what, um, you know, what the future holds for you, you know, would absolutely be tuning in and um, anything you want to plug to the audience. Well, I just want to thank you guys too. Like I said, I'm wearing this shirt right now. Thank you for all you do for the Best Defense Foundation and being that example for all those guys who, whether it's military or law enforcement, firefighters, whatever it might be, they're thinking about moving on to that next chapter in life. Uh, anybody they can look up to who has had a similar background is nothing but inspiration. So, uh, and lessons as well. They can apply to whatever industry uh, or whatever path they want to go down. So, uh, thank you for that. And uh, I'm sure I'll be seeing you soon. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Jack. We appreciate it, man. Thanks, Jack. Take care.